You are listening to the audio preaching podcast from Heritage Baptist Church in Corpus Christi, Texas, led by Pastor Johnny Che. Our church is dedicated to serving Jesus Christ and reaching the world by going forward with the gospel. We pray that you will be helped and blessed by this message from God's Word. Church, I can start this in a lot of different ways. I can tell you some fancy illustrations that catch your attention. I can give you some definitions or statistics that may shock you. Or I can simply say this, not everybody who claims to be a Christian is a Christian. And not everybody who believes in Jesus Christ is a Christian. To be a Christian in the biblical sense of the term means something far different than what many people attach to the word today. It's a loose term. It's a term that has been dragged through the mud. It's a term that should mean much more than it means today. It's been treated almost like the name of a political party. But it, and, and we can't control that. We can't control what other people do. We can't control what the world deems a certain word means. But we can deepen our heart and with a biblical conviction come to an understanding of what it should mean for us. And if we are going to claim that name, Christian, Christian, how that should affect our lives in many different ways. The word Christian is only... How many times do you think the word Christian is used in the Bible? Two times. No. No. Three times. Three times. Once in the um, passage that we are going to read in Acts chapter 11. Once in Acts chapter 26. Is it Felix or Festus that says, almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian? I think it's Felix. And he says, almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. Only two times is it used in Acts. And then another time it's used in 1 Peter chapter 4. And it says, if any man suffer being a Christian... And he continues. But only three times in Scripture. The word Christian was first used and first given as a derogatory term from what we understand. But it was taken very well by those first church believers in a certain city. We're going to read about it. Acts chapter 11. Once we found it, let's go ahead and stand. As we draw our attention to verse 19. If you go back to Acts chapter 8, you don't need to do that now, but that is when we are first introduced to a man named Saul of Tarsus. Saul of Tarsus comes and starts persecuting the church, and so the church scatters in multiple directions. The rest of chapter 8, 9, and 10 starts focusing on some major events that took place once Saul of Tarsus comes on the scene. Chapter 11, verse 19, picks up from chapter 8, verse 3, where it says that everybody scatters abroad. We're going to pick up the narrative now, looking back, taking, taking our eyes off of some main specific events that are going on, and then we're going to look at what happened to the church as a whole. And what you're going to see is they mainly scattered in three different directions. And verse 19 says, now they which were scattered abroad upon the persecution that arose about Stephen traveled as far as Phenis, that's to the north, and Cyprus, that's to the west, and Antioch, that's to the east. 
um, preaching the word to none but unto the Jews only. And some of them were men of Cyprus and Cyrene, which, when they were come to Antioch, spake unto the Grecians, spake unto the Gentiles, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned unto the Lord. Then tidings of these things came unto the ears of the church, which was in Jerusalem, and they sent forth Barnabas, that he should go as far as Antioch, who, when he came and had seen the grace of God, was glad and exhorted them all that with purpose of heart they would cleave unto the Lord. It's still an issue today, especially with Eastern religions, that people just add Jesus to their shelf of gods. Oh yeah, I'll, I'll clear off a little space and I'll put Jesus up there as well. And he's excited about their faith. He's excited about the grace. They, they got saved. But what he's saying is it needs, the shelf needs to be cleared off now. And you need to worship Jesus and Jesus alone. All the idols, that all needs to go. And Jesus needs to be the only one on the shelf. And that's what he's focusing on. But he needs some help in order to do that. He was a good man, full of the Holy Ghost and of faith. And much people was added to the Lord. But he needed some help. Then departed Barnabas to Tarsus for to seek Saul, who the, not a lot of the Jews are the biggest fans of. I mean, the, they, guys, I know that you're scattered here to Antioch because some guy started persecuting. I'll be right back. I'm going to go get him. <laughs> okay? Oh, man. But... Barnabas knew that Saul was the apostle to the Gentiles. And we have Gentiles here. And we need to bring the apostle to the Gentiles. And when he had found him, he brought him unto Antioch. And it came to pass that a whole year they assembled themselves with the church and taught much people. What that tells me is in the Jewish calendar, 360 days straight they met. Every single day they met. Because there were that many questions, there were that many things to address, there were that many things for the people to learn and unlearn. They needed that time. And it appears they enjoyed that time. And in that year, something else happened. The disciples got a name for themselves. Not Jews, not Jesuits, not God-fearers, which is what they used to be called, Christians. No Jew, no Greek, all under one banner, Christians is what they were called. And in these days came prophets from Jerusalem unto Antioch, and there stood up one of them named Agabus, and signified by the Spirit that there should be a great dearth throughout all the world, which came to pass in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, every man according to his ability, determined to send relief unto the brethren which dwelt in Judea. I don't know if you caught what just happened there, but I'll point it out later. Which also they did and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul." Message title is a title earned. Christian is a title earned. It is not a name given. It is a title earned. Father, bless the preaching. Help hearts to wrap their comprehension about this truth. Lord, that lives may be changed and that we truly can take this name not just as a bumper sticker or some random term that is assigned so flippantly to many people, but that as these people back here truly earn this name, that we would earn it as well. We ask this in your name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated.
The suffix I-A-N, a member of. I'm from Egypt, what are you? An Egyptian. I'm from Syria, what are you? Syrian. I'm from Sicily, what are you? Sicilian. I can't think of any more other than Sebastian, and I don't think that has anything to do with sea bass, so I just think it's an unfortunate name. Hopefully nobody here is named Sebastian. I'm totally kidding. Christian, a member of Christ's party. That's what it means. It also can mean this, a follower of Christ. It could mean this, like Christ. It could mean this, Christ's men. Another way it was taken was this, little Christ. Look at these Christians, a bunch of little Christs running around. Lost its meaning over the centuries. But when it was first given, it was earned by those who reminded others of a certain person. Now, there's several different ways I can go with this. I think I'm going to skip to the end, and then I'll come back to the beginning. How did they earn this? How did they earn this title? And I went back through the passage, and I tried to find what stood out, and it, it came out very, very quickly. But how did these disciples in Antioch earn the name Christ's men? A member of Christ's party, like Christ. Little Christ. And here's the first thing that I see in verse 20. The word of God was on their lips. Wherever they went, they shared the gospel. Wherever they went, they preached the word. And didn't Jesus do that? Wherever he went, he preached. Many times he said, I must needs go to this city so that I can preach to them, and I can preach to them. He went everywhere preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And these people started doing that so much that others started saying, you know, you remind us of somebody. We're going to call you Christians because the word of God was on their lips. Here's my question. Are you a witness are you a witness wherever you go? Is the word of God on your lips, or do you talk about everything else? Do you find it easy to talk about politics? Do you find it easy to talk about sports? Do you find it easy to talk about shopping and sales and products and restaurants, but you find it difficult to speak about your Lord and Savior? And may I remind you that as these people were sharing the word of God on their lips, they knew if I speak my belief, it's putting a target on my back. You know, just a couple months earlier, they had crucified their Savior. And not long after this, the very reason that they were scattered is because one of them at the church named Stephen stood up to the Sanhedrin and said, you are the ones who have always rejected the prophets and you're rejecting Christ now. It's nothing new. And they put him to death. And yet they, wherever they went, they shared the gospel. The word of God was on their lips. Here's the second thing that I see. Why were they called Christians? The hand of God was on their efforts. Do you see that in verse 21, I think it is? Verse 21. 
and the hand of the Lord was with them. You know what that means? Obviously, we knew that Jesus had, had God's hand on him. Why? It was evident in the power that he brought into his ministry, the power of his word, the power of his works, the miracles that he performed. God's hand was upon him. And now these people had that same hand of God upon them. My question is, when you try or when you serve the Lord, whatever you do for the Lord, are you doing that in your own power or is God's hand upon you? And the people who gave them this name could not deny there's something different about your effort. There's something different about your ministry. There's a supernatural backing to it that cannot be undone. Do you remember as the, uh, as the Sanhedrin came together, and I can't remember exactly where it is, um, but I believe it's at the very beginning. The, the Sanhedrin comes together and one of them says this. If this little uprising here is of man, it will come to nothing. And you don't have to do anything about it. Why are we fighting against it? If it's of men, it will come to nothing. But if it is of God, you can't stop it. No matter what you do against it, you cannot stop it. And these people had God's hand upon them. Nothing could stop them, not even persecution. The more that they tried to kill them, the more popped up. And I want to know, sir, I want to know, ma'am, who are so quick to claim the name Christian. When's the last time you remember God's hand was upon your life? Now, I am not saying we should be the first to say, oh, I know, I know God's hand is upon me. In fact, the closer you, the closer you get to God, the further you feel away. But I do, I do, I, I do know that there have been times at this church, I do know that there have been times in my life, other than uh, only because of the grace of God, but I do know that there have been times in my life, I've seen it in some of your lives, and I've seen it in this church, where I knew that God's hand was moving. I know of a preacher who lost it lost God's hand upon him. I, I, I cannot tell you when God's hand is upon me, but I can definitely tell you when it's not. I can definitely feel it when it's not. It's very evident. To me, it is at least. And I remember the preacher, he wrote, he wrote this. He said, one day, he said, I lost my power in my preaching. I lost my power in my and my effectiveness, preaching with the same fervor, not seeing results, studying as much as I used to study before, even studying more, and not coming across the way I wanted to come across, praying like I used to pray before, and not seeing prayers answered. It felt like the heaven was brass, and I could not get to God. It felt like I was so separated from him. And he said he broke down one day, and he prayed, and he said, Lord, even if it is to throw my soul in hell, I just want to feel your hand on me again. I would give anything to feel your hand on me again. And the man begged, and the man cried, and the man pleaded, and the man fasted. And according to him, God's power came on that, on that ministry again, and it started to go forward and grow. Do you realize you can't do anything without God's hand on your life? And you certainly can't claim to be a Christian. How did they earn this name? The word of God was on their lips. The hand of God was on their efforts. The grace of God was in their lives. When Barnabas came to that place in Antioch, he could not deny. Now, Barnabas is a Jew. And this whole Gentile thing is new, right? 
It's just starting to gain traction here that the Gentiles are now a part of this. It's no longer the, father, the family of Abraham. It's now the church, this mysterious thing called the church. But he could not deny God's grace. Now, let's not use the world's definition of grace, okay? This whole idea that grace means you can live however you want and find forgiveness and God will just be okay with it. That is not biblical grace. The best message that I've ever heard on grace was preached here by Brother Angel. And he preached it in 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 16, I think it is. By the, let's turn there. Let's find it. Let's find it. 1 Corinthians chapter, I, I think it's 16. 15, excuse me. I was going to say, watch there not even be a 1 Corinthians 16. 15, 1 Corinthians 15. The grace of God has been used today to, to lead to this lazy, lackadaisical, apathetic, complacent belief that I can live like the world and I can talk like the world and I can act like the world and as long as I'm under grace, I'm good. And the Bible talks about that, people who turn the grace of God into lasciviousness. And um, what does Romans chapter what does Romans chapter six say? Um, Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. Here is what biblical grace does when it works in a life. First of all, it does something for you. It does something for you. It changes you from a sinner to a sinner that has found favor in God's eyes only because of Jesus Christ. It does something for you. It changes your standing. It takes you from guilty to innocent. It takes you from darkness to light. It takes you from wrong to right. It takes you from guilty to justified. That's what grace does. And that's what, so first of all, it does something for you. Then it does something to you. See, when, when you realize that because of Jesus Christ, you are now going to heaven, you are now forgiven, you are now completely justified in God's eyes, you're going to do something about it. You're not just going to sit down and say, thanks God for the ticket to heaven, now I ain't doing nothing for you. You are going to do something for him. Grace is going to do something to you. It's going to make you say, I want to live for the one who died for me. I want to do something for the one who forgave me. And then it's going to do something through you. Because, yeah, you're going to want to do something, and you're going to want to... But what are we? What are we? Who are we? We're sinners. We're dust. We're ashes. That's all that we are. But the grace of God will empower you to do something in his name. And that's what Paul says. Grace did something for me. By the grace of God, I am what I am. I was the chiefest of sinners, and he forgave me. Made me apostle of the Gentiles. An apostle, he said, I'm not even worthy to be called an apostle. But he made me an apostle. He made me a believer. He made me a child of the king. Grace did something for me. And then he said, grace did something to me. His grace, which was bestowed upon me, was not in vain, but I labored. I labored more abundantly than they all. It made me want to do something for the Lord. And then grace came in into those labors and into those efforts and did something through me. Yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. Is grace evident in your life? Are you growing? Do you know how the grace of God is evident in your life? You will be growing. You will be taking more steps. You'll be going higher, higher, higher. Didn't Paul say, I, I, 
forget those things which are behind and I reach forth unto those things which are before. I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. We need to be going higher, constantly up, up, more, 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 growth, growth, growth. And that will not happen without grace. But it's a sign of a Christian. It's a sign of a Christian that is not satisfied with where they are. I need to do more for him. I need to live more for him today than I did yesterday and more tomorrow than I did today. That is what grace is going to do to you. And that's what Barnabas saw to these people. And by the way, the world saw it too. <laughs> I wasn't supposed to tell you until that until the very end. But do you know who called them Christians? You know who called them Christians? It wasn't themselves. Hey, guys, I thought of a name for us. I want to I I brand our club, and I already got it trademarked with a little R. It was the world that called them that. It was the world that said, look, look, at all these, look at all these people who are living differently than the way we are living. Look at all these people who are following this one that they claim to be the son of God, dead and risen again. Look at them so willing to put their lives on the line. Look at them so willing to live differently than we are. Some, something must be happening to them. You know, you know who they remind? Let's call them Christians. Because the word of God was on their lips, the hand of God was on their efforts, and the grace of God was in their lives. I got to move on. These next three are specifically about Barnabas. They're not talked about for the whole church, but I, I, Barnabas was a part of the church. And you know what? The more Barnabases we have, the better. And the Bible said this about Barnabas. The joy of God was on his face. When he came and he saw these people that were changed, that were different, that were believing, he was glad. He was glad. He wasn't skeptical. Well, we'll see. I, I get so sick of that. I get so sick of these old, don't say it, I, I'm, I'm, these, these curmudgeon members who see somebody who's new, who see somebody who's excited, who see somebody who's the grace of God is so evident in their life, they're on the edge of their seat, which is how they used to be, by the way. And what they say is, oh, just give them some time, they'll settle down. Settle down? I hope not. I hope not. I hope they keep their fire. I hope they keep their momentum. I want to keep them going. And how many times I've seen a new convert overtake an old member because the old member has lost the word of God on their lips. They've lost the hand of God on their efforts and they've lost the grace of God in their life. Not as far as salvation is concerned, but as far as their growth. They've just, this, as long as I maintain, I'm good. But when this man saw a bunch of these people excited, willing to spend a year to learn, he was glad. He was glad. Are we not glad about what we're seeing right now? What we're seeing right now? A man 50, 60 years old sitting in here with Brother John talking to him, tears running down his face as he accepts Jesus Christ as his Savior. Doesn't that mean something to you? Because that's not happening everywhere. It's not happening everywhere. And God is not obligated. God is not obligated to use our efforts. God is not obligated to bless us in that way. But he's blessing. The baptistry waters are stirred. People are saying, I want to join and I want to be a part of this. We should be glad about it. We should be happy about it. The joy of God was on their faces. You know what joy is? Joy is different from happiness. 
Happiness is based on happenings. Joy, you know what joy is? This is the, this is the best definition I could come up with joy. Joy is being happy regardless. Because life is going to get tough. Let's not forget Barnabas is traveling to Antioch because a bunch of them are being persecuted and dying right now. But when he sees that God is working as much as Satan is fighting and even more, and the more that Satan fights, the more God overcomes, he just had joy. Paul was locked in prison, shackles around his wrists and around his feet. And they hear, and he hears this, in prison, Paul, the gospel's being preached. It's being preached. Now, some of them are preaching because they hear that you're in prison and they want to take up your mantle and they want to do something. Other people are preaching so that they can get back at you. And they're saying that you are in prison because the Lord is against you. They're saying that you're in prison because God's, God is obviously against you. And Paul, in prison, probably finagling his hands to be able to write it in a very cold Mamertine prison, says this, as long as the gospel is being preached, I will rejoice. I will rejoice. I will be glad that God is still working in lives. The joy of God was on his face. What's the next one? The Spirit of God. The Spirit of God was in his heart. He was full of the Holy Ghost. Full of the Holy Ghost. Now, when you get saved, you get as much of the Holy Ghost as you will ever get. He will move in. God doesn't skimp. He gives you the Holy Spirit. He is our earnest payment. But to be full of the Holy Ghost is when the Holy Ghost has all of you. If you are saved, you have all of the Holy Ghost, but you are not full. You are not filled with the Holy Ghost until the Holy Ghost has all of you. And this man had all of the Holy Ghost and the Holy Ghost had all of him. Here's the next one. The faith of God. You notice that? He was a man full of the Holy Ghost and the faith. The faith of God was in their ministry. Everything that they did was based on faith. Everything they did, what, would it not be a step of faith to be baptized in a public river knowing this is a target on my back, but I'm going to trust that the Lord is going to protect me? Do we trust him or do we doubt him? We doubt him so very often. I doubt him so very often. I remember standing up here with all the men singing Onward Christian Soldiers as we said, let's break ground on this thing. Let's go. Man, that was a good service, wasn't it? I mean, God, just the faith that we had at that time, let's step out, not knowing the entire time that I had a text on my phone that we had already been approved of the loan. We're singing Onward Christian Soldiers. I was thinking, bro, you don't even have the approval yet. But yes, we did. We stepped out on faith. And yet, you know how many times I've walked over to that monstrosity and thought, what in the world have I done? <laughs> and what a slap in the face to God, don't you think? Yeah. Son, son, Johnny, Johnny, after all I've done, I brought you this, this random couple who just so happens to know the president of commercial lending that I gave you the loan through. <laughs> the text was sitting on your phone as you're preaching. You have no millionaires in your church, and yet the, the, the giving has grown and grown and grown and grown and grown. I've taken care of everything. Not only that, we're bringing, I'm bringing you souls. People are being baptized. People, do you think if I can bring you people, I can bring you money? But we don't trust him how we should. Jesus said this, have faith in God. Have faith in God. Be not afraid, only believe. Be not afraid, only believe. 
Lee Robertson, who built a church of 3,500 in Tennessee. Consistently 3,500. High days of much more than that. It might, it might be much more than that. Please don't quote me, but at least 3,500. Somebody asked him at the end of his life, Brother Robertson, if there's something that you could change about your ministry, what would it be? He said, I'd have more faith. I'd have more faith in God. This man built a Bible college. He built a church of thousands. He built multi-million dollars. And, you know, he didn't build that. But he, he, the Lord used him to do that. And he said, uh, one big regret, the biggest regret that I have in my ministry is I did not have enough faith in God. Why were they called Christians? They had faith. They had faith. And why shouldn't they if their Lord was alive? Next one. The church of God was in their focus. A year, a year daily they met. A year daily they met. It was their priority. And that's a part of what earned them the name Christian. I don't think we deserve the name Christian if the church of God is not in our focus. It was in Jesus' focus. He gave his life for the church. And I'm real tired of people who claim the name of Christ, who treat church like it's a $20 a month gym membership. I'll go when I go. I'll go when I get around to it. No, you do everything else when you get around to it. I understand that work is going to happen. I understand that life is going to happen. Every time I preach this, somebody comes up and says, look, I work on, look, I get it. I get it. I get it. I get it. Life is going to happen. There are going to be times where you absolutely cannot be here. But that is all the more reason when you can be here, you need to be here. You need to be here. A ball game has never changed my life. Church has changed my life. A a seminar has never changed my life, but I've been in a church service where a message absolutely altered the course of of my destiny. And if I had missed that, if I had missed that service, what obligation does God have for me to bring that message to me? He told me a long time ago, do not forsake, do not forsake, do not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. If we're saying, Lord, I'll go to church and I'll be faithful the day a dove comes down and whispers into my ear, you need to go to church. A dove did come down a very long time ago, and he inspired holy men to say, don't you miss church. And they didn't. And these friends, these lost friends, Miss Elizabeth, start saying, wait a second, you used to come out on Mondays. Now now where are you? I'm going to, I think they call it church. Well, what are you doing tomorrow? (laughs) Well, Paul and Barnabas say we're going to talk about this tomorrow, and I really don't want to mean it. I really don't want to miss it. We're going over Isaiah 53 tomorrow. Well, what are you doing Wednesday? Church. What are you doing Thursday? You know, forget it. You're there how many times a week? You're there how many times a week? It was in their focus. And it earned them the name Christian. Christian. I don't think we deserve the name Christian. If we're not going to focus on the church he died for. Last one, the people of God were in their minds. The people of God were in their minds. A prophet comes up and says, there's going to be a dearth in Jerusalem, and it came to pass 
But long before it came to pass, these Gentile believers, these new Gentile believers, these new used to be heathen believers, they knew nothing about the Jews. They knew nothing about the other than this group of people in Jerusalem, these crazy religious people in Jerusalem. They knew nothing about the law. They knew nothing about the sacrifices other than it was something to go and observe. If you ever went to Jerusalem, it's kind of a cool place to go to. These Gentiles, when they heard there's going to be a famine that comes to our Jewish brethren, they said, the brethren, guys, we need to do something about this. They'd never met them before. They never met those people, but they, they have these new people who have just scattered here. Oh, I came from Jerusalem. My cousin's still over there. My nephew's still over there. My brother's still over there. And they're about to go through a dearth. And these Gentiles say, well, we can do something about that. Let's take up a collection and let's send it to them so that they're cared for. The people of God were in their mind. People that weren't exactly like them. People that maybe if they met face to face, they wouldn't have gotten along that much. They wouldn't have had that much to talk about. But they were brothers. They were brothers in Christ. And it brought them together and they said, I want to do something for that person. By this shall all men know that you are Christ's men. By this shall all men know that you belong to my group. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples. You're going to love one another. And you're going to care for one another. Financially, spiritually, friendly, however it is. And when the world saw that, remember the world, the world saw that. Antioch, do you know what the Bible says? Not the Bible. Do you know what history says about Antioch? Antioch was the third largest city in the Roman Empire at that time. Second only to Alexandria and Rome itself. It was the third largest, 500,000 people strong. They called it the, uh, the Queen of the East. It was a beautiful city. But along with worldly prosperity comes wickedness, and vileness. A a historian said Antioch made Rome look holy. A commentator said it was second possibly only to Corinth, but Antioch wanted to keep up. And those heathen people saw a group where, oh man, let's see if I can go through all of them again where the word of God was on their lips, the hand of God was on their efforts, the grace of God was in their lives, the joy of God was on their faces, the the spirit of God was in their ministry, the faith of God was in their hearts, the church of God was in their focus, and the people of God were on their minds. And they said, you know what? You know who you remind us of? You know who you remind us of? You remind us of that Christ character. And in Antioch, they earned that name. They earned that name. Now, here's my conclusion. I just want to give you something to think about. If a lost person walked up to your pastor and said, I want to meet Christ. I want to meet him. You know, I would have to tell him Christ is in heaven. He's no longer on earth. He's here in spirit and in truth, but he is not here in person. You cannot meet Christ. One day you will, but you cannot meet him today. But then if that lost person said, 
Could I meet somebody like him? Could I meet somebody who emulates him? Could I meet somebody who would remind me of him? Could I meet somebody who talks like he talked, who acts like he acted, who reacts like he reacted, who cares the way he cared, and who loves the way he loved? Could I introduce that person to you? Could I introduce that person to myself? If a lost person had to draw their portrait of Jesus Christ in their mind based on how you live your life, what would Christ look like to them? Because we call ourselves Christians, little Christ, Christ's men, followers of Christ, belonging to the party of Christ. If a lost person, okay, let's throw out the analogy, lost, pers- lost people are watching you. They are watching you. And they are going to take their picture of Christ off of somebody who claims to follow him. And when they watch you, when they observe you, if there were no Bible that they could read, if you were the only Bible that they could read, and you were the only image of Christ that they ever saw, would Christ look like Christ? Would they follow you around and say, oh, so that's how Christ reacted when he was angry? Because you call yourself a Christian, right? So, so that's how Christ would react when he was angry. Now Jesus got angry now and then. Never sinned. Never sinned. He overthrew tables and fashioned a whip and started... But he never sinned in it. And people follow you around. Would they, would they say, oh, so that's, that's how Jesus would unwind at the end of the day. So that's what Jesus would watch if he were still alive. Oh, so that's the music that Jesus would listen to. All about sex and drugs and immorality. Well, you call yourself a Christian, right? If they had to draw their their picture of Christ off of your life, would Christ look like Christ? Or would he look very different? Oh, so that's how Jesus would dress. That's how Jesus would react to stress. I see, I see. And you can say it's not fair all you want that people take their their view of Christ off of Christians. I say it's absolutely fair. It's 100% fair. We are his ambassadors. We are his children. And children should look like their father. If, if, the ambassador to, if the ambassador to one of our allies went off, if a U.S. ambassador went off to another country and just started spewing hate toward that other country, would the U.S. be able to say, well, it, well don't, don't take your view of America off of our ambassador to you? No, that country's going to say, I'm pretty sure your ambassador speaks for you, doesn't he? I am pretty sure your ambassador represents you, doesn't he? We are supposed to represent him. And if, if people are following us, if lost people are looking at us, would they say, oh, so that's how Christ would treat people who fell. So that's how Christ would treat people who he didn't agree with 100%. So that's how Christ would talk about his fellow believers. I see. 
So that's how Christ would act toward authority. I see. That's how Christ would treat his spouse if he were married. I see. If the picture of Christ was based off of you, would Christ look like Christ? And if he wouldn't, do we dare call ourselves Christians? Because that's what it meant back then. It was a title earned by people who reminded a lost world about the Savior. And let me say this. If the way we live our lives as Christians does not attract the attention of the world, we're doing it wrong. We're doing it wrong. If how we live our lives does not attract the, uh, the attention and the persecution and the hate of the lost world, we are not Christian. He said, you are the light of the world. And if you find some way to live your life hidden, you're doing it wrong. You are the salt of the earth. And therefore, if you do not purify and preserve and flavor wherever you go, you have lost your savor and you are of no good to my kingdom. Cast it down to be trodden under the foot of men. These people live their lives in such a way where the hand of God, the spirit of God, the joy of God, the grace of God, the people of God, the church of God took such center focus in their life. The world had to give them a name. What would they call us today? And if the U.S. government said tomorrow, we are going to arrest everybody who claims to be Christian, would you be convicted in a court of law? Because they'd go in your car and they'd turn it on and they'd ask, is this a Christian radio? They'd go through your movie drawers and say, is this a Christian movie drawer? They'd go through your subscriptions and say, is this a Christian subscription? They'd go through your search history and say, is this a Christian search history? And they'd follow you around. Maybe they'd go back through and they'd talk to your coworkers and they'd talk. And would they let you go free? Would they let you go free or would they condemn you guilty of being a follower of Christ? Church, I can't help what the world has deemed the word Christian means. But let it mean something different to us. Let it mean something special. Let it mean something real. Let's live like he lived. Talk how he talked. Dress how he would have dressed. One time a Sunday school teacher asked their little kids, what do you think it means to be a Christian, little Susie? What do you think it means? And she said this, I suppose it means I should act how Jesus would have acted if he was a little girl living in my house. That's a good answer. That's a good answer. Lord, let us be Christians. Let us be Christians. Thank you for listening to our audio preaching podcast. For more information about our ministries, or if you would like to get in contact with us, please visit our website at heritagebaptistcctx.org. May God bless you as you go forward with the gospel this week.